0: Good afternoon and welcome to On the Arts, KLW's weekly radio magazine of the performing arts. I'm your host, David Tulipe. Today I'll be talking with composer Lisa Mezacapa about her collaboration with the Drescher Ensemble, The Electronic Lover, a serial audio opera set in chat rooms at the dawn of the Internet. Plus, MAME at 42nd Street Moon, I'll talk with director Becky Potter. And Philippa Kelly talks with Michael Jean Sullivan, who adapted George Orwell's 1984 for the Aurora Theatre. Josh Costello, Artistic Director of The Aurora, joins the conversation. That's all coming up after an update from the BBC News, live from London. Stay with us.
1: Hello, I'm Roisin Hasty with the BBC News. World leaders have welcomed the partial reopening of the Rafa crossing for foreign nationals trapped in Gaza. British and American passport holders are among those who've entered Egypt. President Biden said the development was a result of intense diplomacy. This is the first time civilians have been able to leave Gaza since the latest war between Hamas and Israel began last month. John Donison reports from Jerusalem. For those waiting at the Rafa crossing into Egypt today... For a tiny fraction of Gaza's population,
0: there was finally some light. Egyptian officials say by this evening more than 300 foreign passport holders, mostly Jordanians, had left Gaza. It's thought there are around 7,000 foreign nationals. Over 70 injured Gazans transported by ambulance have also been allowed to leave.
1: Israel's defence minister says the Israeli military has dropped more than 10,000 munitions on Gaza City alone. Yoav Galant said Israel was progressing towards its goal of eliminating Hamas, and thousands of what he called terrorists had been destroyed.
2: It's a determined operation and decisive action. Very strong cooperation between the ground and air forces with supporting fire from the sea. I want to convey my great appreciation for the performance of our forces. These are very important achievements in the field. We're hitting terrorists at every level.
1: The UN Secretary-General said he was appalled by the escalating violence in Gaza, including the killing of women and children in the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp. The Hamas-run health ministry says more than 8,500 people have been killed since the start of Israel's bombardment the u s Federal Reserve has kept its key interest rate at its highest level for twenty two years. It will remain between five and a quarter and five and a half percent. The central bank has been attempting to stabilize price rises by raising the cost of borrowing. The eldest son of Donald Trump has given evidence at a civil fraud trial in New York where he's accused along with his father and brother, of inflating the value of assets to secure favorable loans. From New York, Neda Taufik has more details on what Donald Trump Jr. said in court.
3: Given his role as a trustee of Donald Trump's entire empire, when his father became president, prosecutors said he was the one who was signing off on all of the financial documents, attesting to their accuracy when they were sent to financial institutions. But on the stand, he said, you know, that's what I have accountants for. I'm not familiar with general accounting principles. I didn't compile these statements. That was something that I relied on my accountants and staff to do.
1: World News from the BBC. Austrian leaders have condemned an attack on the Jewish part of Vienna's central cemetery. Sometime between Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, swastikas were painted on a wall and a fire broke out in a ceremonial hall. The Chancellor, Karl Nehammer, promised to combat anti-Semitism with all political and legal means. The President of the Jewish Community of Vienna, Oskar Deutsch, expressed his concern.
3: It's frightening to see a swastika in a Jewish cemetery and the name of Hitler sprayed next to it, and I'm stunned. You have to put it into context.
2: What happened in Israel on October 7th, and then, as a consequence,
3: the anti-Semitism in Austria, in Europe, in the whole world. Jews and Jewish institutions are being attacked, and it seems to be getting more and more dangerous.
1: Police in the northeastern Indian state of Manipur have fired in the air and used tear gas to disperse a mob attempting to ransack a security camp. A spokesman said the 1,000-strong crowd had tried to steal weapons in the capital, Imphal. A curfew has been reimposed in the city. Police say they're deploying additional forces. Since May, there have been clashes in Manipur between the majority Meite ethnic group and the minority Kuki tribal community. One of the founders of the Extinction Rebellion protest group has been convicted of causing more than $30,000 of damage to a British government building. Gail Broadbrook smashed a pane of glass at the Department for Transport during mass demonstrations by environmentalists in 2019. Her conviction follows a four-year legal battle. The Rolling Stones have set a new chart record in the United States. They're the first music act to reach the top ten with new albums in every decade since the 1960s. The British group's latest release, Hackney Diamonds, entered the Billboard chart at number three this week. BBC News.
2: This is Sunni Khalid, news editor here at KALW. In case you missed it, medical professionals from the UCSF Medical Center are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And local bank branch closures are impacting the residents of some poor San Francisco communities. You can hear these stories, as well as others, from our partners at NPR and the BBC by logging onto our website at KALW.org. Meanwhile, keep your dial set on 91.7 for KALW, San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Where our Wednesday afternoon arts coverage begins with the show on the arts. Yours truly, David LaTulipe, as host. We go international with more BBC in the Arts Hour in the second hour as our Arts Hump Day Wednesday continues. Well, there will be an in-person listening party and live cabaret performance this Saturday, November 4th, at the Dresher Ensemble Studio in West Oakland celebrating the premiere of the final episodes of The Electronic Lover, a serial audio audio opera set in chat rooms at the dawn of the Internet. It's a co-creation of Berkeley composer Lisa Mezacapa and New York writer Beth Lissick, commissioned by the Paul Drescher Ensemble and New Performance Traditions. The event features a listening party of the new episodes and then a cabaret-style performance of selections from the nine-episode opera featuring 13 cast members and musicians. And 1980s-themed reception will follow to the performance. To tell us more, the composer, Lisa Mezacapa. Berkeley, California-based composer, bassist, and producer Lisa Mezacapa has been an active part of California's vibrant music community for nearly 20 years. Her activities as a composer and ensemble leader include ethereal chamber music, electroacoustic works, avant-garde jazz, music for groups from duo to large ensemble and collaborations with film, dance, and visual art. Recent projects include Cosmic Comics, a suite for electroacoustic jazz sextet based on Italo Calvino's stories about the origins of the cosmos; Organelle, a chamber work for improvisers grounded in scientific processes; Glorious Ravage, an evening-length song cycle for large ensemble and films drawn from the writings of Victorian lady adventurers; and Touch Base a collaboration with choreographer Risa Jaroslow for three dancers and three bassists. She also co-leads the Community Improvisation Ensemble, the Duo B Experimental Band, with drummer Jason Levis. Lisa, so nice to talk with you once again.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Sure. Um, I should mention first off that, uh, boy, this is... Uh, Serial Opera had its first episodes premiered back in 2020. Why don't you tell us about its genesis with uh, San Francisco's Beth Lissick, now in New York, who uh, was your collaborator?
4: Yeah, well, um, it's been quite an epic journey um, creating this music and creating the story with Beth. Um, We were first rehearsing this work right before the pandemic hit. And um, so it was a pre-pandemic project but we wound up um, needing to figure out how to start recording all of these singers. It wound up being 12 singers in our cast um, and musicians and trying to figure out how to put this thing together um, during lockdowns and in a safe way. So we started this project and released our first episodes in mid-Summer August, uh, mid of 2020. And uh, every year since then, we've been kind of trickling out a few episodes at a time. Um, We've been releasing everything uh, as a podcast just because everyone can easily get them on their phones um, and listen on the drive. And uh, now we're celebrating the kind of rounding the corner of this kind of uh, big undertaking that we've done together.
0: Well, nine episodes. Was it always intended as a, a sort of podcast and an ongoing project?
4: Yeah, we were really excited about making a a project together that sort of reflected the way people consume culture now and the idea of binge watching and liking the idea of of story and how story continues through multiple episodes. And so we knew we wanted to do a serial and there is a history of serials and operas. I mean, The Ring is a big one, not to compare this (laughs) this quirky creature to The Ring, but um, the idea that um, you have these characters and you want to see what happens to them next. Um, is something that was a through line from the very beginning. And then when we came upon um, our kind of focus for this and being uh, early 80s chat rooms and women kind of connecting in, in this really new environment, um, we kind of, all our, all our interests kind of converged.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your, your composing is so listenable and coupled with the cleverness of Beth's writing, it's a real joy to hear. Let's hear an excerpt from an earlier episode set up for us, if you will, et cetera.
4: Oh, that's great. Um, uh, Some of the pieces are kind of solo arias or duets, and every now and then we have a lot of fun just making a piece that is uh, an ensemble piece with many members in the cast, and often it's in the setting of a chat room because all of the text that is sung, all of the lyrics and libretto in this project that are sung are, are being typed as part of the story. So this is a bunch of people in the early 80s. Um, kind of cutting loose in the Etcetera forum and uh, giving their opinions and having some fun together.
0: Etcetera from Electronic Lover, music of Lisa Mezzacapa with text adapted from the web by Beth
5: Lissick. Whoa! Uh, Get what? out! No way! Whoa. Too what? true.
1: There's a mass exodus.
6: Oh, and aside ooh. from a few film you buffs say. debating the use of the sand sandworms right. in Doom... Whoa. Everyone is cutting loose in the etc. form. I
5: thought diet coke
7: is way better than regular coke. I actually like wearing a condom. I have a latex fetish. I
8: don't
3: care what anybody says, but Donna is extremely talented.
0: An excerpt, etc., from Lisa Messicappa's serial opera, Electronic Lover. That line, among my favorite lines in that track, Lisa, astrology is for sad people, which is countered with spoken like a true (laughs) Taurus. (laughs)
4: Beth Lissick is a master of comedy and humanity. Um, I have a lot of fun sending her texts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, the texts are these snippets and more from actual early Internet chat threads from something some might remember as the well.
4: Uh, no, they're not actually, they're inspired by but they're not actual text. Now, this is all original. The text is all original, but they're very much inspired by the community of the well and what we learned about um, people meeting in the Bay Area in particular around that. Yeah, for sure. Were,
0: um, were you It's an, all original. Were you an early adopter of technology when it was coming out and about, being in the Bay Area?
4: I mean, I was uh, I was in New York growing up, and then I was a kid who um, I I remember. I think I was probably of the generation where we first were like using Netscape in college and having passwords and having to do homework online and things like that. So um, I'm a little bit younger than the people who are in this chat room, if that makes sense. (laughs) I was in college. I was like in, I was probably in elementary school at the time of the people in 1984 in this chat room um, who are finally, who are meeting each other and um, they're kind of like young professional women and adults and nerds who would otherwise have been really alone in their lives and then suddenly the internet allowed them to connect and Kind of blossom as as people and blossom as this community um in a very naive way in the way that in a ways that will be seem charming to us now <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, share with us a little bit of your composing technique and how that has evolved. I imagine it's very electronic based now, or do you still use a, an old fashioned piano and a Beethoven notebook that you scribble in here and there? <laughs>
4: um, well, it's funny because I think one of the things that wound, wound up being great about my process is for every project that I do. Uh, the story or the inspiration winds up telling me how to write the music or what instruments to use, so I kind of let some let things take their uh kind of go their course in terms of like what should the instruments for this project be or um, what should some of the inspirations be that I'm like tapping into musically and so because this is set in the early 80s for the first time I wrote for keyboard and synthesizer and Steve Blum who plays synth on this project is such an incredible collaborator in helping me understand how synthesizers work because I'm a composer who before this I wrote for improvising you know jazz musicians so upright bass drum set saxophones but this project has such a different sound because the story kind of needed it to have a different sound, so uh, it's been really fun also digging into a lot of '80s pop music and, t- and TV theme songs, and kind of distilling some of what made those things sound so great, um, and some what made them sound cheesy or what made them sound still fantastic decades later. So it's been a lot of research too to kind of dig into the sound world of that era, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, how how did the sequence of the episodes? um come to be. I mean, did you and Beth decide, okay, let's go here next?
4: Oh, that's a great that's a great um question. So, initially the story for this came from an article that we found that was in Ms magazine in the early 80s about this online community and we kind of branched out from that. But we created the story together and we kind of started to flesh out the characters from that original article and decided what we needed to add and then we kind of needed to shape the drama over some series of some course of time. And in this case, nine episodes, kind of eight in an epilogue. Um, and so we've been working just collaboratively to make that story have some interest and have some drama and to kind of understand where all these characters are coming from. So the early episodes kind of each focus on one of the main characters and getting to know their backstory and their hopes and dreams. And our main character, uh, Joan, is really this instigator figure who, uh, helps everyone kind of be realize their true selves but also might not be who she seems. <laughs>
0: Well, you can let have this experience online if you'd like and hear all of the previous episodes. But it's gonna be way more fun to hear the final episodes <laughs> live with this amazing cast of characters you've assembled from virtually all of the episodes. Right? Tell us a little bit about who's gonna be there on uh, yeah. We Saturday. have
4: eight. We have eight of the vocalists uh, plus the uh, the musicians who are accompanying them there this Saturday. And and the singers are just so incredible because they all really come from different corners of the music world. We have classical singers and choral choral trained vocalists, jazz singers, people who tour with famous rock bands, um, who are, have done cabaret and you know classical concert music, um, have their own rock soul bands. Um, so what's really fun for me is they all bring a really different personality and character to uh, to their to the characters they're playing in the opera and you could also really identify them sonically because without the action on stage you need to be able to put headphones on and hear oh that's Karina Denike again singing that part or that's Katie Stepan again so they all are very distinctive and it's really fun that um, we've never done a live event before so it's worth saying that this is the first time they're going to be singing together this has all been done. Um, individually in the studio up until this point. So it's really special.
0: That's great. And even in the uh, et cetera, um, cut, I I recognized a couple of voices there. It's nice to hear.
4: Yeah, Uh, exactly. And then of course
0: the party afterwards and an eighties themed, uh, listening party, or eighties themed uh, cabaret afterwards.
4: Yeah. So we have this cabaret performance and hopefully everybody will be having beverages and relaxing as they listen. And and we kind of hope to cultivate a celebratory uh, atmosphere. And then, um, it didn't take long for me to put a call out to the cast and see who wanted to curate the uh do on to dj their 80s music set so they're buying 80s music sets for afterward um and so that should be really fun because uh yeah again we haven't had a chance to kind of uh enjoy each other's company and just marvel at each other's artistry uh, the the way uh, you would know, normally with a group that is performing live all the time, so it's a real rare chance for all the singers to actually hear each other and sing with each other. So
0: Saturday, November tw- November fourth is Saturday at the Dresher Ensemble Studio in West Oakland. theelectroniclover.com dot com for more info. I am going to let you choose, Lisa. We've got a couple other cuts. Uh, would you like our audience to experience in another life, or like a fish needs a bicycle?
4: Um, maybe in another life. Uh, this features Michelle Amador, who will be one of the people singing. And then you also have some other members of the cast in the middle there. With some fun narration as well.
0: Great. In Another Life, music of Lisa Mezacapa with text created creatively by Beth Lissig, now based in New York, uh, used to be in here in San Francisco where she was uh, raised. This is from The Electronic Lover, being performed live this coming Saturday. Here is In Another Life. Lisa, thanks for taking some time today.
6: Commune since 1971.
8: Twenty-seven babies, twenty-seven humans, twenty-seven alive.
6: Don't worry, they weren't all hers. She was the commune's midwife.
8: Sasha, Rainbow, Jacob, Sage, Marley, Christopher, Tiara, Anthony. Zay Tinsley, Sandra Scout,
9: Nurturing, calm in an emergency.
1: But after 12 years living on a rural farm. Growing our own food.
8: Sewing our own clothes. Building
5: our own homes. Struggling to make their dream a
8: reality.
0: An excerpt from In Another Life, music of Lisa Mezzacappa. Beth Lissick there. She'll be here on Saturday as the final episodes of The Electronic Lover are presented live with an 80s-themed reception afterwards this Saturday at the Drescher Ensemble Studio, theelectroniclover.com. For more information, we'll have that link on our website as well. Still to come... Philippa Kelly talks with Michael Jean Sullivan, who adapted George Orwell's *1984* for the Aurora Theatre. She, uh, they will be joined by Josh Costello, artistic director of the Aurora. But let's go back to classic Broadway for a moment. A taste of the wonderful music of Jerry Herman that percolates throughout his musical MAME, which opens the fall season of 42nd Street Moon tomorrow night through the 19th of November. This production of MAME is choreographed by Lori Wood with musical direction by Tim Fletcher and directed by my guest, Becky Potter. Becky returns to 42nd Street moon after having directed the wonderful production of the pajama game last season Becky is also an artistic associate at b8 theater company in concord for the last 25 years she has worked around the bay as a teacher director actor and dramaturg and has served on the theater faculty of oakland school for the arts becky welcome to on the arts
6: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Sure. I think the thing that I like the most about Mame is that it's based on a true story, sure. that of the life of Patrick Dennis from his autobiographical novel, Auntie Mame.
6: And it's such a fun read. It was so much fun to to take a look at that before we started the rehearsal process, because um, it's it's the stories are just so lovely and they're so hilarious and timely today. Um, so it's it's really wonderful to, to go back to that sort of source material when we were, we were looking at this show.
0: Well, to recap, it's a period piece set in New York City and spanning the Great Depression and World War II, focusing on eccentric bohemian Mame Dennis, whose famous motto, life is a banquet and most poor sons of mm, snitches are starving for to death. Her fabulous <laughs> life with her... Wealthy Friends is interrupted when the young son of her late brother arrives to live with her, and they cope with the Depression in a series of mm, interesting adventures, shall we say.
6: <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's certainly a, a whole lot of fun, um, and the Jerry Herman score makes it um, just even more delightful.
0: Well, Cindy Goldfield fills the practical pumps of the role of Mame in this production, although I bet you it was more like Birkenstocks that Mame wore for the most <laughs> part. Here are a few of the grand dames who have played Mame. Angela Lansbury, of course, originating on Broadway, a role that would some say was lamentably adopted by Lucille Ball in the movie version. Uh, yes, Angela Lansbury was well known before her murder. She wrote in Sweeney Todd roles. She would later reprise the role in the 1983 Revival, Celeste Holm, who did the first national tour in place of Angela Lansbury, Ginger Rogers in the 1969 London West End production, Juliet Prowse for a 1990 tour, and Christine Baranski in the Broadway Revival 2006. Surprisingly, no major productions since then, although, of course, in the canon of great unavoidable American musicals that smaller companies adopt so well. Uh, yeah, so, it's go ahead. Please.
6: Yeah, no, it's 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 a wonderful wonderful score and it's such an incredible part um Mae especially is just such a uh leading lady glorious role um and we're so pleased to have Cindy um filling that that part for us. She's incredible.
0: Well, which direction should has Cindy taken or is it it can't be entirely her own having these these legends before her?
6: Oh, sure. i I'm, I'm, she's, she's, I know she read through all the books as well, um, to, to get ready. And, um, you know, she takes a little bit from everything, but she's, she, um, I've, I've known Cindy for a, a quite some time. She directed me when I was a, a, a youth in, in theater in the Bay Area. And so, um, she's always sort of been an anti-mame spirit in my heart. And so, um, what she brings, um, to the role just, Uh, feels very natural and, and, and very her own and unique.
0: I just learned that for its second Broadway run, Jerry Herman wanted to cast Judy Garland in the role. But that request was denied because of Judy's um, mm-hmm. liabilities, shall we say, at the time. Uh, in the in the great bosom buddy role of Vera Charles, names have included, of course, Beat- Beatrice Arthur, both on Broadway and film, and the great Elaine Stritch. That's a role I would love to have seen. Yes. Elise Youssef is Vera here at Forty Second Street Moon, and that's a, such a fun relationship, itchy and scratchy at times, but best buddies. Uh, bosom Buddies, so to speak. And so we hear... Let's hear uh, Beatrice Arthur and Angela Lansbury catfight a bit in Bosom Buddies, then more with the 42nd Street Moon's Becky Potter.
7: We'll always be Bosom Buddies Friends, sisters, and pals will always be for somebody if life should reject you there's me to protect you if I say that your tongue is vicious if I call you uncouth it's simply that oh, who I'm aware that my candid opinion may sting Though often my frank observation
8: might scald
7: I've been meaning to tell you for years You should keep your hair natural like mine If I kept my hair natural like yours, I'd be bald But darling, we'll always be dear compassion. My like crony, my mate, will always be harmonizing. Like Orphan Annie and Sandy, like Amos and Andy. If I say that your sense of style's as far off as your youth, it's simply that. Who else but a somebody will tell you the whole stinking truth Each time that a critic has written your voice is the
8: voice of a frog Straight to your side to defend you I rush You know that I'm there every time that the world makes an unkind remark When they savior a Charles is the world's greatest lush. It
7: hurts me. And if I say your fangs are showing, main pull in your claws, it's simply that. Who else but a bosom buddy will notice the obvious flaws?
0: The amazing Bea Arthur and Angela Lansbury in Bosom Buddies from Mame, opening the 42nd Street moon season uh, downtown. Uh, Becky Potter directing the production there and uh, Cindy Goldfield filling the role of Mame uh, with, um, let's see, Miss Youssef performing Vera. Uh, that's such a fun relationship. And I, I didn't realize also that back in 1966, not only Bobby Darin, but Louis Armstrong and Herb Albert all charted in the U.S. and Canada with their cover records of the the movie's title song name. So at Scott Legs yeah. and the amazing Jerry Herman's tunes.
6: Absolutely. The, the, the melodies, of, there's just so many melodies that just um, stay with you all day and all night. Um, but it's a very, very tuneful tuneful piece. Um, yeah. Elizabeth Jones is actually our Vera and, um, ah. she and Cindy together are fantastic. Um, uh, Elise is, um, our Gooch, um, right, Agnes Gooch. Gooch, which is another fantastic role. One of the things I love about this show is there's just so many strong women characters. Um, they are j- just knock it out of the park. Um, and it's, it's a delightfully, um, female centered piece in in that regard.
0: Well the things start off with MAME proclaiming her view of life, proclaiming it's today, you know, not let's not worry about anything else. Let's just celebrate today. Let's hear a little bit of that and then I'll talk more with Becky Potter.
8: Light the candles Get the ice out Roll the rug up It's today Though it may not be anyone's birthday And though it's far from the first of the year I know that this very minute Has history in it We're here It's a time. found off It's too damn
0: Music of Jerry Herman, the Angela Lansbury interpretation of It's Today from MAME. Amazing attitude. And just hearing her voice again, people just don't realize what a powerhouse she was on Broadway, Angela Lansbury. Boy.
6: Yeah. Yeah. She was, I mean, such an incredibly unique character, too. Her voice is so unique. And I think that's one of the things that's fun about MAME, too, is that she's a very, um, uh, you know she's definitely one of the the, the great leading lady roles but in a, a not like any of the others in some way like she's she's very unique in her um in her outlook on life and sort of she's she's funny she's um she's incredibly heartfelt um in a lot of ways she's a very rounded character that we really follow her trajectory all the way through um and it's it's a, lo- a lovely lovely part and it's a really great story for today
0: Indeed. Speaking of today, there's a, a, a tune that has become a part of the Christmas tradition called "It We Need a Little Christmas. But in fact, it wasn't as, as part of the play and the show. It wasn't performed during the Christmas season. It was performed during a particularly downtime that they were experiencing, saying, well, we need a little Christmas just to, to brighten us
2: up a little bit.
6: Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those Depression era Christmas musical theater songs. There's a, there's a whole genre of them, but, um, it's definitely, uh, a great, um, uh, pick me up. It's on my Christmas playlist every year when I, when I get haul out my, my holiday music. Um, and, and, and uh, frankly,
0: as we mentioned off mic, it's getting close enough that we can get away with it.
6: <laughs> exactly. Halloween's over. The decorations are out in the stores already. You know, we can, we, we all need a little bit of pick me up. And I think that's one of the, the, the great things about, um, this kind of a musical comedy right now too.
0: We need a little Christmas from mame. Thank you Becky Potter for joining us.
6: Thank you so much for fill having up me. The tree
8: before my spirit falls again fill up the stocking I may be rushing things but deck the halls again now For we need a little Christmas right this very minute candles in the window Yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry, but Santa dear, we're in a hurry. So climb down the chimney, put up the brightest string of lights I've ever seen. Slice up the fruitcake, it's time we hung some tinsel on that evergreen bar. Grown a little older i need a little angel sitting on my shoulder need a little christmas now
0: boy i guess we do need a little christmas now don't we well you can experience that in uh, 42nd street moon's production of mame which opens tomorrow night and runs through the 19th 42ndstreetmoon.org we have that link at our website their season includes falsettos Forever Plaid, and Bright Star. Check them out. We move to theater of a different type next with our dear friend and occasional guest host, Philippa Kelly, talking with Michael Jean Sullivan, who adapted George Orwell's 1984 for the Aurora Theater. They are joined by Josh Costello. Take it away, Philippa.
3: Thank you, David. And welcome to Michael Jean Sullivan and Josh Costello. Michael Jean, it's such an honor to be here with you. And I might mention that, um, you are a true Renaissance person being a director, a playwright, an actor. Um, I last interacted with you in, um, when you played Malvolio for Marin Shakespeare Theater, um, in this last season and now you have adapted, well, you uh, you adapted 1984 a little while ago and it's been translated into five languages, but it is going to be presented at the Aurora Theatre uh, in person from November the 10th to December the 10th. So everybody, please get your tickets because um, this show will certainly be in danger of selling out. Um there, is, there are masked performances for those who are immune con- compromised or just prefer to be in a space where everybody is masked each Wednesday and Sunday, and the production streams from December the 5th to the 10th. And for anybody who doesn't know about 1984, the original it was written in 1949 by George Orwell right after the Second World War and and the theme is Big Brother's surveillance state which seeks to control not just our bodies but our minds as well, reaching into every corner of our lives. Accused of thought crime, Winston Smith faces an interrogation that will reveal his struggle for scraps of love and freedom in a world awash with paranoia and violence. Can the yearning for freedom be extinguished or quelled or is our shared humanity more powerful than any forces of repression? This seems very timely. Um Michael Jean, you've written or co-written over 25 plays for the Mime Troupe, and you've recently won a Guggenheim Award, one of your many, many awards. And as I mentioned, 1984, your adaptation has already been translated into five languages. Was there a particular prompt for staging your adaptation in this particular moment, and and I guess I'm wondering whether there might be a particular relevance to the rise of AI.
9: <laughs> well, unfortunately, 1984 is kind of always timely. You know, there's not a oh that would you know authoritarianism, totalitarianism, fascism, Nazism, uh, you know that kind of oppression of the average citizen, and the average citizen's acceptance of it hasn't gone out of fashion. When I originally wrote this particular adaptation of 1984, it was spurred by the Patriot Act. It was spurred by the United States, not only using all of the all of the propaganda at our government's fingertips to convince us to invade people that they wanted to invade anyway, and to completely dehumanize any of the civilians who happened to die. But also for us to know through what was going on at the time that people were being tortured in our name, and people accepted that. They were like, well, they must know something. Our government is doing all of the things that we say we hate so much, but it was kind of accepted. And so at that point I had 1984 in my mind. And uh, cause I was, I was writing all these shows for the Mime Troupe. And and each Mime Troupe show is always about pointing out these facts and, and disconnects that people have with issues, but also indicting the audience and saying, how are you tacitly part of your own oppression? And with 19, only we do it with comedy. Um, and 1984, not so comedic. Um, but I wanted to really, again, show the audience how, how are you complicit? How are you, you know, in your acceptance of the propaganda, of your repeating of the propaganda, of your acceptance of, as Orwell says, you know, the constant state of warfare, the psychological warfare, terror, all of these things that keep us so bound to our fear And that allows a small elite group to come to power in such a way that they say that they are defending us. They are keeping us safe. And we see this not just in the United States, but at this particular time in history, all around the world.
3: Gosh, that's just such a a wonderfully put sentiment. And when you mention keeping us safe, um, been thinking lately even about a a book that I was reading uh, about uh, putting elderly people into nursing homes to keep them safe and the author Mm -hmm. wonders why are we doing this why is the notion of safety above all else privileged and what about experiencing and tasting life and 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 stepping aside from fear?
9: Well, the thing is, if you can elevate safety to a ridiculously high level, you what you are really doing is elevating fear. You are saying you have to be safe at all these times. You are implying fear. There are people in parts of this country who think they can't go to a freaking starbucks without a rifle with them and they will say this is because they need to be safe and they will say that it is because they are they this is their rights but really they're terrified they spend every day when they wake up and walk out of the door in the morning someone has told them to be scared all the time and that's how you end up with people feeling like the only way their voice can be heard is through violence and who benefits from that is whoever is going to use that fear to transform the country, to take away rights, to make sure that people aren't focused on the truth. They're focused on whatever facts uh, 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 support their fear. And it allows, in our name, horrible things to be done to others and to ourselves.
3: Oh, Michael... It just reminds me of Waiting for God, you know, our rights weren't taken. We gave them away. Uh, yes, right. It's just amazing, isn't it? Michael, um, the amazing Barbara Demashek is is um, is directing this production and I'm wondering, do you go into rehearsals or do you stay away so that you can um, just be as surprised as any of the rest of us?
9: Oh, I don't want to be surprised. But I, uh, I do. I went to the first week of rehearsal. And I was there and I talked a lot to Barbara and I talked to the cast. I was there really to answer any questions. I don't want to get in the way, but at the same time, I want to, and you know, and it is the director and producer's job to kind of shepherd the production, but I want to make sure that if there's any uh, uh, confusion over anything that I'm there to help them. So, cause you can, you know, it's easy to make a mistake and then later try to justify it in some weird way inside the production. Where you go, oh, man, we made this choice, but now I agree we would have to do this, and, and you can end up in a rut. Uh, but Barbara did so much research. It was so nice to talk to her over the summer. Once Josh told me that I was very uh, thrilled that she was, had been picked as the director, and we had very in-depth discussions about Orwell's life, about the world that he was writing about, and how little has changed and all of my research, and not just about Orwell, about other books like, like the the Iron Heel by Steinbeck and We by Yevgeny Zamayat and these other books that influenced Orwell's writing of 1984. And she knew the books. I was like, oh, good, another nerd. Um, so it was really uh, so I so I when I stepped out of rehearsal about a week ago, well, more than a week ago, it was because I felt a lot of trust. With what was going on. I did want to go back this past Sunday. There was a a designer run through and I couldn't go because I was really sick. I got a really bad cold in a week off. So I'm going to go back this week just to check in again and see if there are any new questions that have come up as they've been staging things. But I have a lot of uh, faith both in Barbara and the wonderful cast that the uh, theater has put together.
3: Yes. And just for our listeners, a design run is where there is a, a full run of the play, um, where the costume designer, the set designer, the lighting designer, the sound designer can see how the production is moving and how they may need to adjust their Um, their designs for the production. And that's always such an exciting thing. Um, Michael, Jean, I I just um, was so enchanted by the press in Barcelona who said, um, and I quote, Sullivan has resolved the challenges of Orwell's novel by setting the entire play in one austere space, a dark room deprived of all technical aspects and without technological gadgets, but sufficient to recreate the atmosphere fear of mystery, anxiety, and the fear of the unknown, omnipresent, veiled oppressor. And I'd love to know, without giving away too much, what we might expect at the Aurora.
9: Well, one of the things I told Josh and Barbara was when I originally wrote the show, uh, the Aurora Theatre was one of the spaces I had in mind back in 2006 when it world premiered. I was very much thinking of that space because of, because of it, it can feel wonderful and fun. And I've been in comedies at that space, but it can also feel oppressive. And it can feel like the community is very clearly watching the show. And when Orwell wrote the wrote the novel, the idea of a telescreen, the idea of always being on, always having people in the world can see you, this intrusive camera in your room, in your house, in your bedroom, in your pocket, was unthinkable. Now we all carry them around. We all have a telescreen in our pocket, and we film ourselves, and we see the world. The technology that was so frightening to Orwell is, for most of us, accepted every day. You sit down in front of your computer and you assume the microphone's off, just because, you know, uh, Microsoft or Apple has told you the mic's not on. But it could be, but we have accepted a certain amount of self-surveillance and surveillance of others. So I wanted to withdraw all of that technological horror that meant so much to Orwell in his time and really focus it on the human beings, to focus it on us, how we accept the self-censorship, what we think of as thought crimes, how we jump on someone on the internet or wherever because they've stepped a little out of line, what we think of as patriotism for ourselves and for others. Those The, the, the self-censorship, and, and the, the acceptance of the dehumanization of the other is something that we do. The screens don't do that to us.
3: Mm. Michael Jean, I, I'll just say for our listeners, Michael Jean is married to the magnificent Belina Brown. And I wonder what that household is like in terms of when you're creating a piece, do you uh, bounce it back and forth with Belina um, being herself? such a wonderful artist no
9: <laughs> because I, I still am pretty pretty uh, uh, um, I have to be really controlled because you know there's a point when you're writing something where it is so clear in your head but it is not necessarily clear on the page and it's, and it's hard to explain something and there's this delicate moment where if the right person says the wrong thing at that moment you're gonna it can completely disrail you It can derail you. You can suddenly go off and you're trying to answer questions that you hadn't even asked yet because that person asked that question. So um, when I was writing, like when I wrote my uh, one-person show, I remember specifically I did not let Valina read a draft until I got to the 13th draft. Then I let her read it. Mm -hmm. Uh, With 1984, she was more involved because the first reading of 1984 was actually at the Denver Theater Center. Not produced by the theater. Valina and I were in Denver doing a show at the Denver Theater Company when I got a phone call from Tim Robbins asking if the Mime Troupe had a show that we'd never produced. And I said, well, I kind of have one. So I worked on the script as best I could, and we did a reading there. And so she had she was more involved. She was one of the readers there. And so after that, she came to the reading. She's always given me feedback on it. But giving feedback is its own particular art, and I'm so fortunate to be married to someone who also works at a theater of original plays, the mime troupe. So she does know how to do that. She doesn't just go, well, that's stupid. Even if it is, Um, (laughs) but the main thing for Valina and I, the main thing we do, we were talking about this the other day, is we have just really long philosophical conversations. You know, we'll just get up and if she's not teaching that day or I'm not teaching or we have time off, we just sit there for hours and we'll talk through different different, the philosophies of life and, and political themes and different things of history and psychology. We're such nerds. <laughs> um and you know and 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 that's that's uh that's always been the case. that's how we met. We were nerds then and we're nerds now,
2: Michael. I was really taken um by what you said about uh imagining aurora theater company as a home for this piece from when you were writing it and um I just want to point out that I think part of the reason for that, you mentioned how the community feels very present at Aurora. And that's because our theater is set up in a thrust configuration, which means that the audience wraps around three sides of the stage and it's 150 seats, but it's only four rows deep. So you are always very close to the actors and the actors are on the same level as the front row of the audience. So it really feels like you're in the room and you're very aware of being part of a community experiencing the same story together and participating in that imaginative act of experiencing a play together and with a play like this and the, the just how smart you are in the way that you set the whole thing in the interrogation of Winston and retell the events of the novel, um, through that prism and through that framing device, just really lends itself to a space like this, where we are surrounding the action and we are implicated in the action. We're part of it. We're in the room with what's going on. I just love how that all that all fits together.
9: Mm. Yeah, essentially, the audience on all three sides are three of the telescreens. They are the community yeah. watching this happen in their names. Mm. And they can see through the actors to the audience on the other side who is also watching it, which is why I thought ah, this is the space for it.
3: Yeah, that's just perfect. And what beautiful pre-holiday fair, life fair, <laughs> um, which uh, brings me to the question, Josh, what's up after 1984?
2: Uh, well, I'm so excited about it. this is our 2023 2024 season. It started with Born with Teeth by Liz Duffy Adams. Uh, 1984 is up next and it's, the rehearsals are going really well. It's been great to have Michael around for it. Um, Barbara Damashek is just absolutely the right director for this piece and it's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. Um, at Aurora Theater Company starting in a couple weeks. Um, after that in, uh, December, we have, uh, we have a cabaret slot in December in our second space. Um, so at the same time as 1984 is playing, we also have invited, Uh, the hip hop theater troupe Thelonious, which has been around in the Bay Area for many years. Um, fantastic group of artists, very talented musicians and, uh, and actors and theater makers. And they are going to be uh, performing uh, a mixtape, a bunch of their music that they have written in the past, but also uh, music that they are writing for our Uh, commission that we gave them. We commissioned them to write an original hip-hop musical for Aurora, so it was a chance to workshop some of those productions. And then we've got three more shows coming up in 2024 as part of this season, and I encourage everyone to go to Auroratheater.org to find out more and to get your tickets for 1984.
3: Fantastic. And remember, it opens on November 10th. And thank you so much, Michael, Jean and Josh. And in closing, I would like to say that I will be at the Dresher Ensemble Studios Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Both Friday and Sunday, there is Katakali dance at the Dresher Ensemble Studio. And that is an amazing dance. Um, It's iconic. It is almost like an endangered art form now. You come and the dancer has spent four hours putting on his makeup. It's an extraordinary event. And then Monday, the Arinda th- uh, Library, the Magic Theatre, and a Play On Festival free event, a reading from Richard II adapted by Naomi Azuka. And thank you again, Michael, Jean, and Josh. And thank you, David.
0: Of course, and thank, thank you.
9: Th- Thanks. Always great to talk to you, Philippa.
3: You too.
0: Thank you, Philippa, Michael, and. Josh, we'll see you again on the arts down the road. As usual, never enough time to let you know what's going on here in the Bay Area. A couple of things that are happening. The Berlin and Beyond Film Festival has their autumn showcase. The Ashkenaz Music and Dance Community's 50th Anniversary Gala is on the 4th at Ashkenaz in Berkeley. Ashkenaz.com for more information. The Santa Rosa Symphony showcases Mahler's. First Symphony, along with Clarice Assad's world premiere percussion concerto, Play, this weekend at the Green Music Center, Weill Hall, srsymphony.org. And there's a one-person show, Piaf, the show starring French sensation Nathalie Lermite, on Monday, November 6th, one night only at the Herbst Theater, of course, featuring the music of the one and only Sparrow, Edith Piaf. Here she is appropriately singing Autumn Leaves and, interestingly enough, in English. Takeable Edith Piaf, a one-woman show starring Nathalie Lermit on Monday, one night only at the Herbst. Go to cityboxoffice.com for more information. That's on the arts for this week. Our shows are archived at KALW.org. My thanks to Janice Lee for producing the show. They're all archived at KALW.org. I'm David at KALW.org. If you'd like to send me a comment or a show suggestion.